Anyway, uh, Arnie, take it away. Thank you. Uh, let me just review briefly uh, what I'm going to talk about. It, it turns out, though I, I never uh, give talks at evolution meetings, it, it turns out that the proteins and the genes that I'm going to tell you about have had actually, I think, a pretty interesting and profound effect on evolution, rates of evolution. Uh, and, and that's because they arise very early in evolution. That's one of the things I'll show you. Uh, and and they, in, they enforce fidelity. Right? So they're very anti-Darwinian in the sense that um, they actually kill germ cells uh, at high rates when there's damage, when there's stress. And I'll go over that in, in some detail because it makes the point about how they enforce fidelity uh, over in, in the species. Uh, and then it turns out in vertebrates, uh, one of these family of genes called P53, P63, P73, which are transcription factors and role in programs, as you'll see in a, when I talk about function, uh, one of these genes gets usurped. It's pulled out of the genome, uh, it's pulled out of the germline, and goes into the soma in vertebrates, um, maybe just about the time that vertebrates actually start depending heavily on stem cells. Uh, because uh, the surveillance now moves from the germline and its stem cells uh, to the body, the soma, and its stem cells. And that surveillance is an anti-cancer surveillance. So uh, the, the mother of the family, P53, uh, is called a tumor suppressor gene for that reason, because it helps prevent cancer from arising over a lifetime. And I'll, I want to tell you the two things about it that have been quite remarkable about this family. If what I've said was anywhere near true, that it's, it enforces fidelity, it has a big impact on evolution, uh, then I should be able to trace it way back in evolution, and it's both its structure and its functions, and indeed even its signal transduction pathways, ought to have been conserved over evolutionary time periods. And you'll see that the conservation stretches back uh, down to about nematostella, which is a sea anemone, uh, which are just two germ layers uh, large. And, um, and this is a conservation of both structure uh, and a conservation, a structure and function. Um, and uh, even, the, as I say, the signal transduction pathways it works upon uh, remain the same all the way through humans. So I, I'm just going to divide the lecture up to introduce you to the human family, because that'll be the base, very anthropomorphic, that's going to be the base for um, what I'm going to keep moving back in time, then talk about the structure function during evolution. Uh, and then I want to finish up, uh, I can't resist talking a little bit about uh, cancer and, and its impact, because I guess one of the titles for this week is cancer. I want to talk about clonality of cancer. And in particular, once you, uh, can, un once you can determine how many clones give rise to a cancer and the competition between clones you can actually, if you can really do that accurately, which you'll see in a minute, we take advantage of a very favorable system to do, you can actually calculate a mutation rate in the absence of ensuring fidelity, in the absence of P53. And so that gives a somatic mutation rate uh, that tells you why this is really a tumor suppressor. And so I'll finish up with that. That's all about the immune system. And I'll try to take you slowly through the immune system because that's more complicated than it needs to be. All right, so uh, let, let me start with humans and structure and function of the P53 family. There are three uh, genes that, that we all have, and they have a very large diversity of function. Uh, they're shown here. 
let's see what's best. I guess I'll go on this side. Uh, thank you. <laughs> uh, so in, in humans, uh, there's a gene called P53. That's the tumor suppressor. P63 and P73. And their domain structures have been remarkably conserved. In fact, you could see the exact same domain structures right down to nematostella and through uh, flies and worms and so forth. Uh, because it's a transcription factor, it has a DNA binding domain. And the amino acid identity and position is in those three different genes is about 65%. Uh, so these guys are really clearly closely related. Uh, there's a transactivation domain, which is the part of the protein that assembles uh, all the histone modifying enzymes. It assembles uh, RNA polymerase. It, it, and it is also the negative the region where negative regulators bind to, to repress the, the gene. And these have about 25% identity. There, the amino acid sequence in transactivating domains is usually less important. Uh, it's really the charges that are important. Uh, connecting them is a, a domain which actually spills all the way down through worms and flies called the polyproline domain. It's got canonical proline-rich sequences, proline XX, proline which are sequences which are recognized by signal transduction pathways and integrates it into signal transduction pathways. Uh, there's then a, a little linker and an oligomerization domain. All of these proteins are tetramers, uh, down through Drosophila where they're dimers uh, and xenorhabditis where they're dimers. Uh, but in uh, all vertebrates, they're tetramers and this is the oligomerization domain. And then there's one other domain, P73 and 63 has it's called the SAM domain. It's a carboxy terminal domain. It ensures stability of the proteins. So the half-life of P63 and 73 is pretty long. It's a matter of hours. Uh, quite interestingly, the half-life of P53 is minutes. It's, it's actually six minutes in most cases. It can go up to 20 minutes. And this is a protein that's highly regulated because it's going to be, uh, it's going to be a grim reaper. It's, a, in fact, a, um, a protein that turns on death signals apoptosis and so it is highly regulated and it's regulated almost exclusively at the post-translational level and that's because it acts fast that way. So when you want to stabilize it and it functions, I'll say, I'll call that activation, when you want to stabilize the protein and it functions, it receives signals from stress, various stress uh, responses like DNA damage is a good one, receives signals from DNA damage. Uh, those signals turn off the ubiquitin ligase that in fact regulates P53 with a six minute half-life. The protein half-life rises and it uh, gets modified by a lot of protein kinases, histone acetylases, histone transferases, and it speaks to the genome in terms of the, the epigenetic codes of methylation, acetylation, ubiquitination, phosphorylation. So it's a, like at most good transcription factors, it's a highly modified protein and has great stability. So, Arnie, can I ask yeah, a question? Sure, please interrupt at the, any time. Yeah. The oligomerization domain, yeah. is that the same interface is used for the dimerization? As for yeah, the so it, they, in, the, in the crystal structure from which I'm inferring what the real structure looks like, uh, in the crystal structure, uh, it's a dimer of a dimer. So it's a really a dimerization domain, but the dot two dimers will homodimerize. And when you purify the protein, the great majority of the protein purifies as a tetramer. And, and that's the reason why we think it's a tetramer. So I have another question, yeah. Arnie. When the DNA binding uh, is, is changing, but quasi-conserved, there's an so analogous promoter sequence that sort of changes yeah. in tandem? So let me say something right at the beginning that's a little enigmatic. 
uh, but uh, unfortunately a limitation of the field. Uh, all three of these uh, are both, are, are not only is the amino acid sequence conserved, the structure is conserved. All three of them bind with the highest affinity to the exact same sequences. Uh -huh. Now, uh, I'll, I'll continue a little bit about those sequences, but that's actually true right back through nematostella, right? So the Drosophila sequences, the Xenorhabditis sequences, the, the, the sea anemone sequences that they bind to are always the same. That's been preserved over 800 million to a billion years of evolution. And that says something about the pathways that it's regulating. Now, uh, you'll see in a few minutes the functions are very different. So that even though they bind to the same DNA sequences, they don't with the same affinity. And so there's a lot of affinity playing. And then there's modification of the protein I told you about, which also changes the transcriptional programs. Right? Okay, so let me tell you a little bit. Uh, functionally, we know about function in humans and, uh, from two, two kinds of experiments. One is human experiments. That is to say, people that don't have, uh, or people who are heterozygous for each of these three. Um, and, and the other is a knockout experiment in the mouse. So let me go through what that is. First of all, with P73, there are no heterozygotes. Uh, I presume that means it's haploinsufficient and that no such people have appeared, or if they appear, they appear very rarely. Right? Uh, the reason is that we have heterozygotes for P63 and, 70, and, and 53, but never seen for P73. Uh, in P73 knockout mice, uh, these mice are viable, uh, but they have significant brain defects and significant defects in the immune system. Uh, they get uh, a lot of inflammation. That means the immune system keeps fighting each other. You get autoimmune diseases. Uh, there's uh, hippocampal uh, problems. Uh, and so it's clearly involved in brain and clearly involved in um, uh, the, the immune system. Uh, but most interestingly, uh, P63 and P73 are in the egg, in the, fertilized, in the unfertilized egg. So during egg development, in fact, all three of these guys are going to surveil a female uh, germline in, in humans all the way through mice. And, an egg, and I'll get back to what that means and how we can see its activity under stress and so forth. Um, so P73 is uh, clearly in the egg. It's responsive to DNA damage. So uh, some of you will know there's a, a really famous oncogene called ABL. It's a protein kinase. It responds to DNA damage. It's a tyrosine kinase that phosphorylates P73 and activates it in response to DNA damage. So P73 actually kills eggs under DNA damage responses. So uh, women who have uh, been exposed to radiation or x-rays, there's apoptosis of the eggs, and P73 is responsible for that. There's even a more interesting analog, uh, homolog of that, and I'll tell you about xenorhabditis. Uh, P63 is the stem cell transcription factor for skin. It makes all of your squamous epithelium. So uh, humans are born uh, with significant defects. There's defects of the skin. There's defects of the bone and cartilage, uh, commonly abnormalities in the hands, cleft palate, a whole variety of other abnormalities in human heterozygotes. So it's haploinsufficient. In fact, all of these are haploinsufficient. Uh, have a phenotype if there's only one copy, of course. And uh, yeah, this is lethal. You'll see why. It's lethal in mice. So uh, when mice are born, uh, mice are born without skin. The first thing that does is they dehydrate very rapidly. And the second thing is they get infections. But it's not only the skin outside. It's the whole lining of the alimentary canal. So their ability to absorb is poor. Uh, they've substituted columnar epithelium 
for squamous cell epithelium, essentially. So this is a real critical stem cell for skin. It's absolutely essential for egg development. So it's also a stem transcription factor in egg development and in the ovary. And so P63 and 73 are really important in the germ female germline. As far as we can tell, it's not expressed in the male germline, either in humans or in mice. And, and so it's left the male germline, you'll see back in the male germline and lower organisms, but not in humans. Uh, P53 is really quite a different uh, kind of animal. Uh, uh, people are born looking apparently quite normal uh, who have heterozygous P53, but they will develop tumors over their lifetime. Uh, those tumors will develop at a young age, so there's significant reduction in age of tumor genesis, and they could have multiple independent tumors, as many as five or seven tumors over a lifetime of different tissues. Uh, those tumors look like they're surveilling, uh, P53's absence looks like it's surveilling uh, stem cells, uh, because uh, at, at birth you get adrenal corticocarcinomas. You see that very early within the first year, and that's a very active tissue. Uh, the adrenal cortex is a very active tissue for division. Uh, as you move into adolescence, you see osteogenic sarcoma, you see um, myosarcomas and leiomyosarcomas, rhabdosarcomas, muscle tumors, you see bone tumors, all where, where stem cell development is going. Uh, but at the age of 15 or 16, female-specific breast tumors, right, uh, as, as the programs for uh, developing breasts roll in. So it looks like for life it's developing, uh, it, it is hitting especially active tissues that are dividing. Now, the extremely interesting thing happens late in life. Uh, uh, the penetrance of this uh, mutation, one heterozygous for P53, is about 93%. So about 7% of people that are heterozygous don't develop tumors. Uh, as they hit 60 and 70 years of age and have not developed a tumor but are heterozygote, have the exact same allele as other people maybe in the family, right? Um, they actually start to have less tumors than the average population. So they are actually, they'll go all of their life, they're people who are 90 years old who have never had a tumor, and their rate of tumor genesis is actually below the population in general, uh, suggesting that the, it, the surveillance is not needed at very old ages, and that maybe that's uh, a reduction in the stem cell abilities um, to the point where this is not important in surveillance at later in life. I think you said this, but double deleted P53 is so, lethal? So no, double deleted P53 is a viable mouse, uh, but you'll see the mouse gets uh, tumors at a very early age at three months. Uh, mice live two years, so three months is a teenage mouse, sexually mature but teenage mouse. The tumor it gets, you'll see, is a thymic lymphoma. Uh, that's a T-cell tumor, and that allows us to look at clonality, and I'll talk about that toward the end. All right? Uh, so for you, uh, uh, really, so here in California, it's not, it's not sunny, but it will be, I presume, <laughs> I hope. <laughs> I come from the east. <laughs> the, um, uh, the, the, a simple uh, thing that happens, you can see this happening. If you go in the sun, right, uh, and you get uh, gamma radiation, you get X radiation, or you get UV radiation of the DNA in your skin, P53 activates and kills the skin cell. So it's responding to DNA damage, it responds to mutations, it responds to telomere shortening, it responds to a variety of gymnastics of DNA damage. It doesn't matter what kind, could be gamma radiation coming through the cosmos, breaks, single double-stranded breaks, it always responds. By responds I mean 
Half-life goes way up. It rolls in a program of transcription, and it kills the cell, apoptosis. It also can throw the cell into senescence, which is a permanent non-dividing state, but alive. Or it can throw the cell into cell cycle arrest, uh, repair the damage, and let it continue. But skin in particular is sloughing off all the time. And, and so that, uh, that response protects you against the sunlight. Right? And peeling, which is a response to too much sunlight, is actually a P53 mediated apoptosis in the skin. So that happens in your gut, that happens in your lung, that happens to all of the tissues of your body. And it's protecting you against mistakes. Right? Because the mutation rate goes up almost a thousand fold if you try to replicate damaged DNA. Right? So it's enforcing fidelity by death. Right? And that's its major function as a tumor suppressor. But it has evolved uh, at very long time ago a wide variety of responses to stresses. So I'm going to just list a few. Hypoxia. If you have on the hypoxic conditions, uh, it will respond and kill. Right? So after stroke, uh, ischemic diseases, a whole variety of things like that, it is the major protein responsible for cell death in the brain or in the nervous system. Right. Sorry, forgive my ignorance. Hypoxia is a pressure? Hypoxia is the lack of oxygen. Lack of oxygen, lack of oxygen yeah. Uh, glucose deprivation, so starvation. Right. Uh, in fact, uh, glucose deprivation is really quite interesting. Uh, anorexic women, women, most anorexics are women. Anorexic women who don't take in enough glucose right, stop menstruating. They no longer ovulate. Right. They have apoptosis of their eggs. Right. And when and these anorexic women have apoptosis of the eggs, that's a P7363 response to a lack of nutrients. Right. Uh, xenorhabditis. <laughs> which has the same P6373 homolog in the eggs, right? Xenorhabditis, when you, it's mature, it's past the Dawa stage, it's now, it's a, it's a maphrodite, so it's going to lay eggs, right? They may be self-fertilized or not, right? If you starve them for bacteria, right, you get apoptosis of the eggs. Now, this is evolutionarily a wise strategy. You don't want to lay fertilized eggs into a barren environment, and so they'll kill the eggs instead. Right? And that's exactly like anorexic women. And in fact, you'll see they use the exact same signal transduction pathways to do that in eggs. Right? So there's a, a long preserved function of, of these molecules, which bind to the same DNA sequences, have the same structure, and have the same functions. Right? And those functions are germline, heavily female germline. Right? Although in Drosophila, you see males. So here's the Drosophila P53. It really, it, the way we, from here on in, you should realize that what is really highly conserved is the DNA binding domain. As I say, it binds to the exact same DNA sequence, whether it's Drosophila or Xenorhabditis. If you fold this in a three-dimensional structure, it has the exact, well, in fact, the X-ray structures of these have been done, has the exact same structure, right? And it has 25% identity in amino acids and 15% identity for Xenorhabditis, called SEP1. Its structures look the same. In fact, it has the SAM domain. In these cases, it's much more like P6373. And so we think the ancestor gene was a P6373 hybrid. But I'll show you that there were lots of paralogs and homologs throughout evolution uh, for, the, for these guys. So xenorhabditis is a insect? Uh, xenorhabditis is the flatworm. Thank you. Uh, yeah. So, um, so uh, sorry, it's a nematode. Yeah, it's a roundworm. Roundworm, yeah. Nematode. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This may be naive, but is there any, any sense you could give 
give us the number of these proteins in a typical cell? You've mentioned many kinds of cells, so there may not be a typical yeah. cell. But, uh, uh, there, there are an estimated, it, when that's half-life is very short, like six minutes, there are an estimated uh, five to 10,000 molecules per cell. Um, it, there are an estimated two to 300 genes that they transcribe. So the, it's in great excess, but it's not always in the nucleus. It shuttles between the nucleus and the cytoplasm, and that's part of its regulatory. These method. achieve their native state in the cytoplasm, and then are that's imported correct. into the nucleus. That's correct. In the folded state. Yes. Yes. And transcription is constitutive. Uh, no. Yeah. So transcription is totally dependent upon these genes, so that the uh, you, the p53 regulated genes are mostly off. There's a small set that's on all the time. Uh, and those have to do with metabolism. It regulates metabolism. It has an intricate, it, well, remember I told you it responds to nutrient deprivation. Uh, it regulates the insulin-like growth factor pathway, which is important in glucose metabolism regulation. And it regulate, negatively regulates that pathway, can turn it off, change its metabolic state from what's, what's termed, well, the use of oxidative phosphorylation to the use of only aerobic glycolysis, right? So what so, about transcription of these genes? Uh, oh, transcription of these genes is literally constitutive in most tissues. Yeah. It, as far as we know, it is uh, unregulated. Uh, what the level of regulation for each of these proteins is at the protein turnover level, which is a faster regulation, regulatory response in all cases. Yeah. So uh, given these numbers, it suggests that the, the binding domain can tolerate quite a bit of mutation. Yes. But yeah. It, the yeah. So there's, you're right. Uh, so there's about, there's about uh, so the binding domain goes from about 102 to about 320. There are 393 amino acids, right? So when it's 15%, it's not an enormous amount. But what's really critical, you, the reason you can see it right away is that there are uh, arginines and lysines in key positions for the folding of it to pick this up. Remember, it's a tetramer. It sees actually uh, 10 nucleotides right, twice, and it can have spacer, right? And uh, it will, and the sequence it sees is quite degenerate. It's purine, 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 C, either AT, AT, G, pyrimidine, 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 comma, spacer, and then the same thing again, right? And so it sees actually two turns of the helix because of the tetramer on binding. And in so doing, it sees a pretty degenerate sequence. And that's part of why probably it can get away with it. But it's, it's really remarkable that you could be 10% different and see that a real pro at, at this structure level will take one look at this and, and tell you that it's a P53-like fold and so forth. Right? OK, so um, that's a little bit. Uh, uh, of the uh, background of the, fun the functional, uh, oh, I should say this, in, in both Drosophila and in Xenorhabditis, the only place this P6373 uh, homolog is, is in fact in the germline. So it's in both uh, sperm and eggs. So if you took a male fly, irradiated it, uh, it would stop making sperm, it, just like a human would, stop making sperm because there's been a round of apoptosis in spermatogenesis. And that round of apoptosis clears out all of the defective chromosomes, and then it starts up again as spermatogenesis proceeds without the DNA damage. Right. So it is a protection against radiation damage. Again, in humans, it's responsible for all the death in your bone marrow. So it's responsible for the immune deficiencies you get after radiation damage. 
it kills lymphocytes at a very high rate. Uh, okay, so, uh, and as you'll see, uh, for instance, that the molecules downstream of these transcription factors that it activates by transcription are the same molecules this guy activates by transcription that leads to cell death. So it's really a, a tremendous con conservation over that 400 million years. Okay, uh, th this is not totally meant to be read. Uh, this is just a, a, a nice evolutionary map all the way from yeast at the bottom uh, to the chimp and humans at the top. And it really was done only to ask the question, uh, this all comes from sequence data. So what, what you go back into the NCBI and you get all the sequence data and you ask the question, how many genes are there that are P53, 63, or 73-like, right? And you continue down. Uh, first of all, there's a very striking uh, uh, transition uh, round about the uh, bony fish. So round about bony fish, you can see P63, 73, and 53, and you can tell what they are right away. Uh, in cartilaginous fish, it's a little harder to, to make that stretch, but you can probably see all three now. The, the only cartilaginous fish, it turns out, to have been sequenced is the elephant shark, which is a little bit of a strange shark. So uh, I don't know that it's going to hold up in all cartilaginous fish, but uh, suffice to say, you can see all three there. And, and it's probably somewhere back here uh, at the, the lancelet uh, here or, or um, the, the sea squirt uh, where there's only one homolog, where you only see one if the sequence is good enough. Here we're at the edge of how good the sequence is, how well it's annotated, and so forth. So you really have to search it. But, but suffice to say, somewhere around the vertebrate, early vertebrates and between uh, collagenous fish and, uh, and bony fish, all three genes arise. Uh, skin production is essential by P63, brain and immune system, P73. Everybody surveils the female germline, right? And, and you'll see P53 surveilling some aspect of the female germline in a few minutes. And uh, prior to that time, all hell breaks loose. And most of what you see is between one, two, or three uh, paralogs or homologs, and, and what you what you get when you do that is you, it looks mostly like p63. So that looks like the early progenitor for the family. Yeah. Uh, for the yeast, there I see there's no. That's correct. So no the, you're now going backwards to try to find the limit, uh, yeast, uh, which is a little bit of a we just talked about that this morning, a little bit of a strange <laughs> organism. Nonetheless, uh, it doesn't have any. That's really clear. It doesn't have any p53. Um, no. Nope. Is that Monasega, the, the Cohenoflagellate? That's a good question. I don't know what it, yeah. which one it is. The clerk. Yes. Yeah. So, so uh, that's a single cell. That, right. Yes. So, so there is a copy in there. The Cohenoflagellates, the yeah. Yeah, that's supposed to be the most recent extent. Um, so, yes, or well, I understand that there's some uh, <laughs> there's some debate about that. That that some people would say just what you said, uh -huh. that that's about as low as you get just before you get to multicellular life, and some people would say it's picked up later on as a single cell degenerating from multicellular. So, I, I don't know the answer to that, but let's just take your assumption as correct. Uh -huh. That would be the start of something in the coanoflagellates. Yeah. What are your thoughts then on the, on the reports that, that you read about a P53-like gene entamoeba? Yes. Yes. Uh, um, so that's right on the edge of uh, the, the kind of, I'd say, statistics that you'd like to use. But it's 
It could be. It could be a second example of a single cell, right? There are uh, the, the question of whether single cells will commit suicide for, uh, you know, for uh, <laughs> beneficial purposes for the population, right? Is open to question and, and open to interesting discussion, and whether or not it's a p53 mediated effect or p53. The, in both the entamoeba and the coanoflagellites, there's no functional data about what it does. The, the first guy that we have really good functional data with is this sea anemone, and I'm going to tell you about that in a minute. Right? So that, that's the only reason I would say I, people have to settle down and really start to get at function if structure is ambiguous, and that's wh where it is right at that edge. Right? That the yes, that's the matastella. Yeah. So yeah. What's with so, the squirrel and the alpaca? They don't have the well, I, no, the <laughs> squirrel and the alpaca has not been sequenced sufficiently. That, that's a, a probably, yeah, I think everybody has to have it, unless they really are heroic. Uh, and, you know. I see squirrels with tumors running around. No, that's true. I, no, no, I, I think that it's all a matter, you know, this is a great example of how you're only as good as your sequence data, right? But the point we try to make is it's probably somewhere in here in the vertebrates, it's really homogeneous and before it's drifting around. And we've only got three examples functionally. I'm going to tell you about them. They're Drosophila, Xenorhabditis, and, and uh, the fly. Right? Since I didn't mention yep. it, I assume the other yeast. Oh, uh, so that's right. Yeast fission yeast don't, don't have it, right? And, and bacteria don't have it. If you, if you do any prokaryotes and look for something like it, you don't see it. So, and plants do not. Okay, that's interesting. That's, so I've been wanting to know that for a long time. Yeah. So there is no P63 in any other eukaryotes except for those here. And one of us have one Let's P53 say, and another P63. Yeah, I, the reason why that's too strong a statement is this depends totally on who's been sequenced, right? This is just a sequence yeah, exercise. Yeah, sequence eukaryotes, there is nothing. The Tomima one, it's not, it's not very it's not very clear. Uh, one of the things we found is, I, we once wrote an article where we just, uh, I spent a long time sort of saying you're only as good as your sequences and so forth and so on. And it really turned out to be true uh, because you could, you could update that article every five years or three years and you get a whole new group that has it, right? That you didn't know because it wasn't annotated properly. So this, this is a little treacherous, but it's meant to be a kind of overview of where it picks up approximately. The yeah. chicken has never been sequenced? The, the chicken has been sequenced. It's really a rotten sequence, and that's a big, of a pro big problem for it. Yeah. The chicken is completely, they, you know, there are not many birds that are in this. I'm sure birds have it. The birds are just reptiles, and reptiles have it, so. Okay, so here, here's the lowest uh, organism where we know something about function. This is nematostella. Uh, it's, it's quite interesting because it only has two germ layers. It has an ectoderm, which you can see very nicely. It has an endoderm, which you can see very nicely. It then has a, a group of specialized cells. It, it makes tentacles, of course. It makes nematocysts. So all of these are differentiated cells from the ectoderm. Uh, and they, they are pretty interesting. And then it, uh, it, and normally, uh, when you grow it in the lab, what people do is cut it up in lots of pieces and then it grows up again. <laughs> so it completely regenerates itself pretty nicely. Uh, but uh, when it wants to uh, diversify, it has a germ cell. And the germ cell is either an egg or a sperm, based on some criteria. 
Um, I don't know exactly where the germ cell is, but it's commonly in the ectoderm here. It will specialize into an egg and it will shed. It will be fertilized and then, uh, uh, so you go through meiosis, you go through a haploid, uh, 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 and, then, and then you regenerate different um, diversities that, that come out of that, that kind of thing. Um, this guy has a P63P73 like molecule. It is only in the germline. <laughs> So it is germline specific. And uh, the more, if you try to look at the natural history of these guys, they live at the bottom. Um, they live in estuaries. They live at the bottom in the mud. But they come up to feed. And when they come up to feed, they get irradiated by sunlight. And, and when the germ cell gets irradiated by sunlight, it undergoes apoptosis. So you could do that in a lab, for instance, but you could see it from the natural history of the estuaries. So this is a defense against producing abnormalities in the offspring. And that's why I say, and, and you'll see this again in, in Drosophila, you'll see it in Xenorhabditis, and that's why I say this is a enforcing uh, fidelity by death. Right? Is it mediated by 63 or 70? Well, it's 63, 70. If, if you try to, so here's where you are probably uh, less uh, secure. Um, there's, there's nothing, there's no ubiquitin ligase for P53 here. So, uh, something else is regulating it, it. It looks like 6373 combination if you wanted to make it closest to something, right? And and that's where it is. There are actually three uh, different genes for for it here, but they're all in the germline, right? So it doesn't play a role in regeneration of the organism, like I think it would in a vertebrate where p53 has been co-opted. Okay, so. Uh, it, the, the, if the protein, you take the protein out and you bind it to DNA, it has the highest affinity to that sequence I told you about. Purine, 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 C, ATAT, G, pyrimidine, 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 two copies, right? And it, so you could just do the exact same experiments looking at affinity. It sees the same DNA sequence. If you look at downstream, what genes it's turning on in the germline when you UV irradiate it, it's turning on genes which are the equivalent of REPA. REPA is the equivalent of a gene called Puma in, in uh, um, human cells. And this is a pro-apoptotic gene that goes through the, um, what it does is it, it releases cytochrome C from the mitochondria, which is, starts the pathway for caspase activated apoptosis. So that whole pathway has been conserved all the way down, that it, that it regulates. So it's really pretty impressive uh, in terms of its regulation. Uh, this is just, to, I'm going to show you a few uh, examples of other ways to look at the evolution of this. These are the three genes in humans, P63, 73, and P53, 63, 73, 53. Um, they, they really, dip, their structure is pretty similar, actually, and they use splicing in a very similar way to give rise to different forms of the protein, a repressor, an activator, and so forth. Uh, what's really quite different is their sizes. Uh, P63 has, uh, is over 250,000 nucleotides long, right? And P53 is only 20,000 nucleotides long. Now, the exons are exactly the same. So these are all insertions into introns. And that's, this, this differentiation happened from the fish on, somewhere cartilaginous to us, bony fish. And, and as you, you'll see, I think it was that P63 and 73 were the precursors that come out of the, the, uh, out of the invertebrates to the vertebrates, right? And so it's a reduction in, 
uh, the intron spaces uh, that are found here. That, that has a net effect of, of speeding up transcription rates for the protein and probably increases the amount of protein in the cell. So how, how, yeah. how big is it without the introns? Uh, it, well, so the, the exons give you a, a protein of 393 amino acids. So you multiply by three, so there's about a thousand nucleotides. So, yeah. And why is the quarter million uh, or so nucleotides for P63 conserved in humans even that long? Yeah, that's a good why, question. Why, why well, we don't we don't recombine now. I mean, even most of this is is junk that you see in the. I mean, is that loose sequence? I don't yeah. can't. Well, I don't know junk. I'm getting a horrible argument here with some people. I'm sure most of it is uh, alu sequences. They're insertions of retroviruses. Um, there's been pretty big invasion of retroviruses over this period of time. And it maybe hasn't been as long a time for people. Well, I, you'll see. You'll see in a while how the rate of evolution of these three genes is tremendously different since fish. That 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 one of them is being repositioned, and that's p53, and the other guys are fixed. And the guy who's fixed the most is p63. And, and I think it's because you don't mess around when you make skin, right? So somewhere around the fish, they make skin. They make scales, but they make skin, right? And you don't mess around with skin because that means you start to change the nature of skin, and that's pretty dangerous stuff, right? Um, Sorry. Yeah. Um, to understand correctly, Greek letters are alternative splice areas? Say again. Yes, this is, these are alternative splice areas. But, so I'm looking at the 73 and 73 uh, on the right this side. gamma, delta, beta. Oh, yes. The, the, the carboxy terminus actually, so the carboxy terminus I sort of forms, sloughed off. Right? Forms into the, the SAM domain? Is that uh, the SAM domain is mostly here, right? Uh, right before the SAM domain is a series of lysine-rich regions your, which are regulatory in nature for the whole protein. So uh, they're acetylated, they're methylated, they are ubiquitinated lysines, there are about nine of them, and they regulate whether the gene turns on or off. Sorry, but in your structure, right, you showed these pictures of domains. So there was oligomerization domain. SAM domains are here. Right, 14. Right. SAM was uh, the very last one. Well, yes. before that was oligomerization. That's, no, and I didn't tell you that there is in the carboxy terminus else. of P53, right? Right here, right? Okay. Right right here. This whole regulatory domain. If you delete it, the protein is constitutively on. If you don't delete it, it is regulated in some way. And it's regulated by methylation, acetylation, phosphorylation, right? And in fact, mice that don't have these things are pretty messed up mice. They're not responding to stress signals very efficiently. So there's a regulatory effect, especially around that region. Uh, let me say that uh, it's very strange. This region actually is a very lysine-rich region that binds to DNA and RNA. The DNA it binds to best with the highest affinity, 10 to the minus 9th, are holiday junctions. And the protein itself inhibits recombination. So a sim really simple experiment that was done is to have uh, the protein present or absent in human cells and culture, infect with two viruses that you're looking at recombination rate, right? And the presence of the protein inhibits recombination. And in the absence of this kind of domain, which is all spliced and everything, you have some kind of effect on recombination. Now, that's never been shown to be functionally very interesting in humans, 
But humans don't come with that mutation. That's a rare mutation that you can make with a mouse, for example. Yeah. Uh, what happens if you replace uh, the two hundred thousand nucleotides by simply a cDNA? Yeah, you can do that, and and it will functional function fine, but it won't be regulated as well. Uh, in, in the uh, here in introns between exon four, right? Uh, there are regulatory regions for tissue specificity, and and especially for in this case for p sixty three for epithelial tissue specificity, right? And, and so it's not regulated as well, but you, if you just blow it open and have it constitutively on, uh, the mouse isn't pretty, but it is actually a mouse. Yeah. It doesn't, its fur isn't really gorgeous. All right, so here's the nematostella, right? And the human P63. And you can see some uh, striking similarities in structure and some significant differences. I don't think anybody's really analyzed this in any, because they're about 800 million to a billion years apart. But, but the, the structure is actually, when you look at it, surprisingly kept. These have been given names that people thought were the homologs. They're probably mostly P63. OK. So now let me just say something about, so if you have proteins which are surveilling the germline for fidelity, right, anti-stress, right, and so say nutrients, hypoxia, um, DNA damage, all, all these stresses, and it enforces by death, right? Uh, and it's true all the way down to nematostella. Uh, the Drosophila and, and um, the apoptotic pathways in Drosophila and in xenorhabditis have been studied in great detail. So you can ask the question, is there conservation of signal transduction, of genes that they transcribe and signal transduction pathways they turn on? So I'll, I will take you through that. This is um, uh, double-stranded DNA breaks, which could be in uh, meiotic recombination intermediates or mitotic defects, right? Uh, endogenous DNA, this is a radiation, uh, oxygen deprivation radical or oxygen radicals, alkylating agents, all of the kinds of DNA damage. Uh, there are a series of, of detectors, right? Now, in, in us, the detector is called ATM and ATR. Uh, ATM is a protein which uh, gives rise to a lot of birth defects if it uh, has, has mutations in it. And it's a DNA damage detector. It detects single and double-stranded breaks. It's protein kinase that attaches to those breaks. When two molecules are brought together at the break, they phosphorylate each other. And then they phosphorylate another protein kinase which phosphorylates a, a ubiquitin ligase that regulates P53. Right? So that's the signal transduction pathway that you see, and, and one of these guys is a homologue of ATM, right? And then there's an effector kinase, and then there's P53, right? And Eagle 1, right, is Puma. Puma is the gene in, in humans. Puma and Noxa are the genes that take out cytochrome C from mitochondria that interacts with a, uh, with a caspase called APAF1. And then there's caspase 3 and cas caspase 7 and caspase 3. And then bang, you get apoptosis. That's the exact same pathway. BCL2 is an inhibitor of apoptosis, right? which is turned off by P53. And what's turned on is the positive regulator of apoptosis. Right? And there's even a cell cycle progression or cell cycle arrest. And this is APAF1. This is the BCL2, APAF1, caspase homolog, apoptosis. Right? So in worms and flies, in, in flies, 
The gene that p53 regulates is called Reaper. Reaper was the first gene found that was pro-apoptotic, and it's in the germline again. Right? So this, what's this is independent of which phase of cell cycle you're in? Or uh, so it's no, it's one no, it's uh, well, it's mostly in the meiotic process. So um, I don't know if it's the first <laughs> meiosis or the second one or, or where it's acting, but any kind of damage will result in no eggs, right? And 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 no sperm in Drosophila. How is the nutrient deprivation signal? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, yeah, so it's yeah, so. <laughs> It's, I can tell you how it's done in humans. I don't know how it's done in the worms. So in humans, there is a, uh, a protein kinase right, which senses AMP. Right? Now, so it's, an a, it's called AMP kinase. And you build it up when you're not making ATP. You're not making ATP because oxidative phosphorylation has been shut down. Right? And the net result is that the ATM kinase activates it actually turns on a set of uh, GTPases which regulate a G protein, which turns on a protein kinase that then signals to uh, P53 that um, all hell is broken loose. It's very different. It does not rely on uh, Well, DNA. You, you, that's the insulin-like. I went through the insulin-like growth factor pathway. This guy has an insulin-like growth factor pathway, but isn't using it quite the same way. This guy's, I'm not sure how it's getting, it's getting its nutrients, of course, from bacteria, right? And it's probably then, could, I don't know how much glucose he gets from bacteria, or she gets from bacteria, or they get from bacteria, some hermaphrodite, right? And, and, um, and, and then what the major amino acids are that it seems to be using to run, right? But it's a nutrient depth. If you're starved for those bacteria, that's when you get this apoptotic pathway. And, and there is no simple AMP kinase that you could find in this organism, yeah. But it's not indirectly affected through DNA damage? No, no, it's, it doesn't appear to be, no, no. You, well, you can never yeah. prove there's no DNA damage. The problem is that what is known is that as soon as AMP levels reach a certain level, it activates that kinase. And that's a pretty interesting kinase. It's surrounded on either side by tumor suppressor genes. And it is a major player in diabetes. Um, so it, uh, inhibiting that metformin activates that kinase. Right? So uh, one of the diabetic drugs works right on that kinase. So it is a big Question player. Yeah, sorry. The, the activation of these uh, different uh, responses, repairs, uh, progression, or mitosis, uh, is it probabilistic, or is it just dependent on the level of damage? Or? It's probabilistic. It, um, so. Uh, a, certain, a certain amount of sperm or eggs will escape. Uh, abnormalities in the offspring are often seen. Right? So um, in a knockout mouse, right? uh, to just to do the, the homolog, in a knockout mouse, uh, females are producing female offspring with abnormalities. Okay? I'll, I'll come back to that one in a slide or two where you can really see something that happened, oh, I don't know, I'm going to guess 50,000 years ago when a polymorphism came into the p53 gene that's absolutely essential for implantation of the egg into the into the ovary in only in caucasians or caucasians and asians it's really a it, it completely narrowed the haplotype structure of the, of the gene so the, here's a by the way able this is the able i told you about this is nutrients must come through this able because that's the thing that's activated by dna damage and nutrients activation in humans. 
So nutrients may come through ABLE, and it, it's using the same protein kinases using... So the, the take-home message in the rough sense is it not, the co tremendous conservation of pathways, of DNA binding, of structure, right? And this fact that it enforces fidelity is really quite an interesting tension against Darwinian movement to give rise to diversity, right? And, and by keeping the mutation, it's part of keeping the mutation rate where you want it, right? And think about it as you could set the set point, right? I mean, people have looked at polymorphisms in the human population, and in this room, you could divide people up into high expresses, middle expresses, and low expresses of p53, give or take, you know, 10, 15 percent, right? And and this because there's a lot of overlap in the distributions, right? So there is diversity in uh, how you use this fidelity factor. And that may have an impact on cancer rates and it may have an impact on germline diversity. Right? It's kind of interesting concept. So here's the, this is the human example I gave you about DNA damage, hypoxia, ribonucleoside triphosphate, uh, spindle damage um, is sensed. Nitric oxide, which is a signaler that the immune system is very active. That's a stress. The immune system activity is a stress. Nutrient deprivation, heat and cold shock, and perhaps one of the really interesting things is oncogene activation. So if you, if you take an oncogene that's got a mutation in it, like RAS, which is a very common oncogene in humans, you put it in a normal cell, a normal cell undergoes apoptosis. It's a P53 mediated apoptosis. P53 is sensing the change in the signal transduction pathway that RAS is mediating, right? And in fact, it, it, it's, it probably senses many signal transduction. In fact, it's known it does. It, it senses the Wnt pathway. It senses the RAS pathway, which is part of the insulin-like growth factor pathway. It senses a large numbers of path pathways, notch, right? And, and if it doesn't like the signaling, it kills, right? And that's part of the surveillance probably, again, of uh, enforcing by death uh, embryogenesis because all of these are developmental pathways. So yeah, so it has a really neat it has a really neat way, right? So you activate an oncogene, right? And it ultimately signals downstream and, and activates a transcription factor in that pathway. So the oncogene in the RAS pathway, signal transduction pathway, is, is a transcription factor, right? Which turns on another gene called ARF. ARF makes a small protein which acts upon the ubiquitin ligase of P53 to inhibit it. It inhibits the ubiquitin ligase and P53 levels rise and when they rise you get apoptosis senescence or cell cycle arrest. But RAS presumably signals uh, also normal development. Yes, it's, and so the, what's interesting about ARF, the ARF promoter, is it senses the level of the transcription factor ETS which is the RAS oncogene. And in the wind pathway it's beta-catenin it's sensing and it senses overexpression of MYC. So the promoter is set so as to tell the difference between high levels and, and the correct level. Right? And you can just do the binding constants to that DNA sequence and you can see that. So the, and that, that's a big locus called the INC4A locus. It's a major locus deleted in human cancers. It makes human cancers blind to oncogene activation. Right? It, it paralyzes the P53 response. So that's a that's an evolutionary aspect of human cancers, but we've evolved a fail-safe 
to and I'm sure we've evolved it not for cancer. We evolved it for development, right? Because it's going to it's going to blow out an embryo that's being abnormal, produced abnormally. Right? Okay, so uh, all of these signal through the ubiquitin ligase, which inhibits p53. And what, let me just finish it. What's quite interesting is that p53 has as its downstream gene its own ubiquitin ligase. So this is, you'll see, an, this is an oscillator in the cell. And it's a real nice fail-safe. You don't build it up too much because as soon as it's built up, it makes its own ubiquitin ligase. And you don't, and you really oscillate through, through exactly the periodicities you want and exactly the heights uh, that you want, at those periodicities. Okay. So what is that periodicity? What is, the, the time oh, well, it's different for different cells, but, but it can be less than a generation or it can be more than a generation, which is a kind of interesting. Cell generation. Yeah, cell generation, yeah. So the periodicity can be twice per 24 hours, or it can be actually once every 48 hours, even though the cell divides at 24. Yeah. So this, uh, Depending on how you want the, the height of it. The nitric oxide, is it a signal coming from innate immunity or is it coming from, okay. So yes. The, so the, the nitric oxide is produced mostly by macrophages, which are in contact with bacteria and other antigen sources. And they alarm the innate immune system. And you often get then a whole signal transduction pathway. So there's no signal in specific invertebrates in that way. I don't know. I don't know where nitric oxide picks up as a signal. I mean, well, so the the uh, sophisticated immune systems really start with sharks and, and yeah. fish. I mean, they don't, right. you don't. Yeah, you really. And even those have pretty primitive T cells and not much. They have B cells with single chain antibodies, things like that. So I don't know where nitric oxide actually comes in. I have to tell you. Okay, so this is the human, but it's really exactly what happens all the way down when you have P53-like functions. Um, and I, I've said all this, so I want to go through it. So this is, this is a, a really telling effect of what happened in vertebrate evolution. So uh, here's the human, and that's taken as zero changes, right? This is ch amino, sorry, these are amino acid differences in the human, from between the human and other species, always in the DNA binding domains. And there's four uh, 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 bony fish here, Right? And so you can see what's happened is P60, this is what I alluded to before, the number of changes in P63 has really been fixed over vertebrate evolution. Very few changes. I presume that's because skin is so important and it's fixed in and it's not changing. P73 is intermediate to that, but there's been an enormous number of changes in the DNA binding domain in P53, and, and that's what's led to this, this kind of hypothesis that, that the ancestor is 6373. It then splits into 6373 here about the bony fish. These guys change little, but this is a readaptation re from the germline into the soma. It has the same functions in the soma of killing if there's DNA damage, if there's hypoxia, if there's stress. But, but it, it is readapted and really changed. And the major uh, evidence for that is this kind of remarkable set of changes that you see. So how do you know that that's just not, I mean, you're going to do yourself more harm with uh, problems in the germline than in the soma, so um, how do you know it's just not relaxed selection in P53? Uh, um, I don't know that. I just know that it no longer 
is in the female germline. I know that anything we've done to, it is in the male germline, but anything we've done to look for uh, abnormalities, let's say in copy number variation uh, in mice that for 20 generations had no p53, we don't see an accelerated copy number variation. We're, everything we've done is that it's no longer really surveilling the germline with one exception I'll get back to. It's not the germline, it's surveilling development, right? And, and yet it's in the soma and, what, and its phenotype, right? is somatic, it's, it's the cancers, right? Can, can so that's that's the reason for the hypothesis, but I can't eliminate what you've said. That's always, a, <laughs> that's always the quandary. But can you transfect between, let's say, zebrafish and fugu and see if it's oh, also? Yeah, so, yes, so a human gene has been put, P53 gene has been put into Drosophila, and it works. And it works in response to all these stresses and Things like radiation Well, mostly radiation damage is Not B53, but 63. Does 63 work down uh, all six, the way So 63 has really changed in, in its properties. Uh, no, I mean before this, right? Yeah. It's, it, is no, it is surveilling eggs and nothing else in humans. Eggs and it's a surveiller. After that, it is promoting the transcriptional program to make skin, right? And 73 is promoting the transcriptional program to make hippocampus, right? So you mess up a fly when you put 63 and 73 back in, but if you put 53 back in, you don't. So functionally, they may all be like what 53 is adapted to, right? But they look more like, structurally, more like 63 and 73. Okay, so that's where we are, and I just want to finish up with a curious observation that was made. Yeah. So, uh, Getting back to Michael's yeah. question, but presumably there's also a fair bit of data on the polymorphism. Yeah, that's what I'm going to talk about now. <laughs> right. So um, when, when, when HapMaps started to come out, uh, we just took a quick look at the HapMap structure. Uh, and this is a, I don't know, this is pretty old now, but it's HapMap phase three, right? And, and so I'm going to compare uh, 53, 63, and 73 from, you know the, the problem with this, the Africans are always the Yoruba tribe, but Caucasians are always Scandinavians that are in Utah, and Chinese are always Chinese that are in San Francisco, right? And, and so you, you have to take this with a kind of grain of salt. It's not, it is not a very wide distribution of, right. So this is, and the sample size is fairly small, but they make the point here. Uh, the number of SNPs that were in each sample, this is not surprising. Remember the 63 gene is a very large gene. Most of the single nucleotide polymorphisms are in introns. The introns are extremely large, 250,000 nucleotides versus 20,000 and 73 is in between, right? And then you get a hap number of haplotypes you can calculate roughly. And then you can get a haplotype index, which at 1.0 is a maximized index for recombination between the different haplotypes, giving rise to diversity, right? So it's pretty clear that 63 and 73, this is human, of course, and they have been op optimized for diversity over the period of times that they've evolved. Uh, what has been, what was quite surprising is, uh, while Africans are uh, not so diverse here, uh, Caucasians were surprisingly restricted in their diversity, and Chinese were somewhere intermediate, maybe, not so restricted. Um, we this doesn't connect for this doesn't connect for all the problems with SNP chips, which is they're they're made to be variable only in Caucasians mostly. 
and less in Africans because of sampling biases. So it's not clear how to interpret this thing. Oh no, uh, well, it, it's quite, this is quite a significant difference, right? Uh, but you're right, they're, they're biased and... I mean, everybody in Utah is probably yeah. related to each other. Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, uh, oh, they are, well, they all have this, I hate to, hate to say it this way, but they all could have the same father, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're more, more than related, right? Uh, uh, <laughs> but, but let me say that this is held up outside of Utah. I can tell you that. I can tell you that for sure. Because we did it with graduate students <laughs> and postdocs uh, on the floor. And, and actually, you could, start, you could see the same kind of restriction in, in the haplotype index. Right? And that's, uh, I, you still have the problem with SNP chips being what they are. That's what, that's what you use. Yeah. Just to make sure to understand, yeah. when you say haplotype diversity one, it means, for example, it the case of, uh, it means you get a maximum number of recombinations between yeah, SNPs so that you actually do generate all the uh, diversity you can through recombinations, which means there's been a lot of time between fishes and us to give rise to that, right? Can you say and, 63 and 73 are much longer genes? Yes. So that would, they're probably long enough to, I mean, you're basically saying that everybody's a heterozygote, right? So you expect those to be higher just because the gene is longer. Uh, no, here, here's what I'm going to tell you. So let me, I'll finish the argument and then we can come back to discussing whether or not these numbers are worthwhile, right? So we interpreted this as a restriction in the haplotype in Caucasians, right? And so we looked for that restriction in the haplotype of Caucasians. And we found that at codon 72, which is out of 394 codons, a coding SNP, right, where Caucasians were mostly arginine and where Africans were all proline, right? And uh, that's a pretty interesting SNP because of proline arginine. We could actually show that the arginine SNP transcribed certain genes at higher rates than other genes. The gene that it transcribed in particular was a gene in the uterus called LIF. Now this is human uterus and mouse uterus, right? And LIF is absolutely essential for implantation of the embryo, the fertilized egg, right? So we took that as a positive selection, right, when you had arginine in the Caucasian background. It's not, you don't have arginine in an African background. There's no evidence that there's any reproductive impairment in Africans, right? So it's a background effect, but in in arginine, you made two twofold more lift, right? In the knockout mouse, you don't get good implantation, right? So the mouse makes about eight or ten eggs, and two of them implant, right? And so here, and, and in, in, we went to fertility clinics, and we found the same thing. Caucasians with proline, right, were showing up at the fertility clinics. The way they got around the problem was they implanted eight or nine eggs of which two or three took, right? The way you can really get around the problem is give an injection of LIF. In the mouse, when you do that, right? And here's the, 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 here's the phenotype, I think. In the mouse, when you give an injection of LIF, right? You implant defective embryos, and you start to see defective offspring. So we think that this, this increase in LIF, right? Gives you good efficiency, but you're still surveilling, right? P53 is still surveilling those signal transduction pathways which are bad. Right? Is that, and so, is that, is hmm? that linked? Is it 
if I understand you, that, that, that mutation decreases fertility. It decreases fertility in Caucasians. Yes, so why is it in the purge? Uh, it's new? Uh, I, well, it, yeah, it's about, um, well, it's at a time, it's at a time after uh, um, humans migrate out of Africa and migrate into Europe, right? That's about 30,000 years, I don't know. And it's, it's too recent to be purged from the Caucasian Well, it's pretty purged now. I mean, it's uh, about 15% of the proline allele is be in this room, right? I think it, um, I don't know. I mean, uh, it could be that the heterozygotes have some advantage. I don't know. It's a good question. But what? But it led us to actually. What was nice was it led us to demonstrate that there is a, a, an advantage for implantation. So p53 has another function, and that is an implantation in the female developmental system. Okay. So is, is that coding SNP? Is that a linkage disk equilibrium with other SNPs? Yes. So, so it's maybe not the effect of this thing at all. Oh, I, I don't think it is because I think, I remember I've said this had to be due to genetic background effects. Yeah. And to go back to the argument for so accelerating the rate of evolution, presumably you want to uh, just do this uh, accelerator, Crackman uh, uh, something uh, test yes. by basically comparing a level of uh, diversification and uh, Polymorphism, right? Then you have the polymorphism data here. Presumably, you want to normalize it uh, to uh, some fixed domain, like so that well, found it by overall length. And, uh, so and the, then, uh, at least in the mouse, which is the only example we have, right? So I'll get back to the human data in a minute, but they won't give us the data for you'll see why in a minute. But in the mouse, the offspring that you have that are surveilled, not, no longer surveilled by P53 because it's not there, don't reproduce. They are runted, they're reproductively spoiled, they're not reproducing. Uh, it's, in fact, the, this was missed, the, the fact that there were birth defect was missed because in the mouse, the, when the mother has a, an offspring that has a birth defect, she eats that offspring. Right? And so you actually, if you come down the next day, you don't see, you see the litter smaller, that's what you see. Right? So you have, you have to have a graduate student who's there at birth, who's watching the birth, right? And now, in humans, it brings up the question about whether or not women who are proline homozygotes, or which is rare, but heterozygotes, right? Are overrepresented, they are overrepresented at the clinic, and they, they force in a lot of eggs, of which two or three may, that's why you get twins and things. And if you ask about the rate of birth defects at an in vitro fertilization clinic, they will not give you the answer. Is the rate of having twins in the ones with the proline different from the ones with the arginine? In the uh, it is only because they're rich, enriched in proline and they have a lot of twins. But they have a lot of twins because they're implanting eight or nine eggs. No, we're right? not I mean, in the particular twins, just oh, in general. In the, in oh, the no. I, I, well, I don't know. We haven't looked at the rate of twins. Yeah. I haven't looked at all at that. I don't, I don't know anything about rate of twin. So this, whether or not this curiosity is real led us to understand yet another function, a differentiating function in, the, in this case. All right. So I'm going to stop, stop here for evolution and I want to go on to a little bit about the question of cancer and how it surveils cancer and the clonality. Because once you can start to understand clonality in cancer, 
it's an interesting question about what happens. It's, it, the, there's a shockingly high mutation rate and a surprisingly, in the absence of p53, and a surprisingly high rate of forming clones every generation. And, and we can make that calculation because of this. All right. So I'm going to introduce you to the, let me just remind you of what I said about the mouse. Uh, if I have a knockout mouse, right, that's a mouse with no p53 genes, it actually does give birth to offspring. Uh, there's a sex distortion because the, there are more males than females. Uh, that arises because some of the females are born with birth defects. Right? Implantation is reduced, so sizes are reduced as, as well. And though actually if you give lift injections, you can restore liticides, but you get lots of birth defects. Right? Uh, these mice, but what, the mice on the ground develop normally. That's sort of, they're actually not quite normal. Let me say, there's lots of physiological defects in these mice. They don't stress well. If you put them on a running wheel, they, they, they uh, get fatigued much quicker than a normal mouse. That's because they are, their whole, energy metabolism is messed up. P53 senses energy metabolism and corrects it, right? They don't take up as much glucose rapidly. They don't, they don't do a number of things. Their immune system is, is messed up too, but that's because they get thymic lymphomas. So I'm gonna, the thymic lymphomas are the key to looking at clonality, so I'm gonna just pretty quickly and scream if you really wanna know the details, uh, take you through the thymocyte development, right? All right, so, uh, early on, uh, around the 15th, 14th day of devel uh, development, there are 21-day gestation periods in the mouse. Um, in the bone marrow, uh, well, this is true in adults too, in the bone marrow, uh, a cell is made called the hematopoietic stem cell. Uh, it's characterized by an antigen on its surface, CD34, and um, in mouse and in humans. And it is the cell that makes all of your blood. It makes about 22 different cell types and tissue types. And it, it's a pretty interesting developmental cell. It is a true stem cell. And the hematopoietic stem cell undergoes a series of progressive differentiations, mostly under the influence of a, um, of a signaling molecule called NOTCH, right? Yeah, until it, it, uh, it makes what is called a pro-B cell, which will go out into the periphery and make antibodies eventually. Uh, and a precursor to T cells, which are needed, there's two types of T cells, CD4 T cells, which are helpers, which are needed to help B cells make antibodies. And they also help a second T cell, CD8 cells, which are killers. And they kill virus infected cells or bacterial infected cells, or they are responsible for killing transplants. They recognize HLA differences at class one. So the, the T cell precursor from the bone marrow moves into the thymus. Right? And so it does so in a blood vessel, and it, it goes out of the blood vessel, and then it, it goes through uh, what, what are essentially uh, four stages uh, that are called double negative. Remember I said there are two kinds of T cells, CD4 and CD8. CD4 are helpers, CD8 are killers. Right? Uh, there are, the beginning T cell series don't have four or eight on the surface. These are surface markers. Right? So that's why they're called double negatives. And there are uh, four types, double negative one, two, three, four, right? And it's uh, all of which are matured under the help of NOTCH, which is going to be a major transcription factor in the uh, tumor. And um, these are, uh, what goes on at this particular point, right, is essentially a, a change in the program to make it into a, 
a precursor of a real good T cell and a tremendous proliferation. Right? It is probably in this range of double negative three and four where the highest proliferation rates are occurring. Uh, we estimate that somewhere between um, maybe a 12-hour generation time at that, in that compartment, right? Um, 8 to 12-hour generation time. Uh, then the double negative cell right, undergoes uh, gene rearrangements, which create, create a T cell receptor, which is unique, right? So uh, in, right in, the, in a particular chromosome, uh, one has four sets of exons, they're called V for, for variable, D uh, for diversity, J for joining, and C for constant regions. And you put them together in combinations with lots of V regions, right? And you generate something like uh, 20,000, 30,000 different possibilities, right? Uh, then uh, when, you just, when you're ready to generate those possibilities, right? Uh, there then occurs an enzyme called terminal transferase which puts in nucleotides between them. And it does this completely randomly. So two out of every three uh, receptors that are being made this way are going to be out of reading frame and you throw them away. And the one that's in reading frame makes a complete protein. It's quite novel and the diversity now that's generated is enormous and it puts the receptor on the cell surface. And the first receptor to go there's a called, two receptors are called gamma-delta. We're not going to deal with those. Uh, the next receptor, this is a pre-B T-cell receptor. The next receptor is called beta. And alpha-beta T-cells are the kind that get cancer in the thymus. Right? Now, the, the reason that's terrific advantage for us is that if we, there's about 100 nucleotides across the VDJ region. And everyone's a unique nucleotide sequence because everyone's a unique receptor. So every time you sequence one, it's a clone. Right? And if it expands, the clone can have, be a thymic lymphoma. Right? So this immediately gives us an advantage by looking at T-cell lymphomas to determine how many unique clones are expanding in the thymus. Right? And as a control, you use something that's a wild type. Yeah. So speaking of clonal expansion, uh, there's presumably proliferation all along that far. As there's not only proliferation, there's death. And the reason there's death is that's the place where you see self. Right, right. So that's exactly the question. So, um, and uh, there's also asymmetric division. So <laughs> we don't know that. The division, we, we, uh, we switch from, symmetric, from asymmetric to symmetric? We don't know that. That's not ever been proven either way. I, that's so why the example, best. When, when I know what you're getting at, but yeah. the, so the, the, our problem is to calculate the number of generations, right? And you're getting at what is how many generations have we really gone through? And the answer is that's why it's a back of the envelope calculation, right? But what we do know is there are about three to four hundred million cells in the thymus, and in the in the CD4 CD8 double negative double positive compartment which is the le leukemia, there are 3 million, right? So there's 10 to the 21 to 10, sorry, 2 to the 21 to 2 to the 23rd divisions to get there, right? That, that's how we're going to calculate divisions in the end. It's just by knowing compartment sizes and assuming everybody's dividing geometrically, right? So uh, here's where the selections are you talked about. 
the, the, beta, the beta receptor, right, is selected for functionality, right? If the T cell does not produce a functional beta receptor, right, at the cell surface, it dies by apoptosis, and it wouldn't surprise you that that's P53 mediated apoptosis, right? So it has to have on its surface something that's signaling back that shuts down P53, otherwise it dies, right? This positive selection at this point, right, it must recognize itself in the major histocompatibility complex. For CD8, it's class one, and for CD4, it's class two. But it recognizes on the epithelial cells of the thymus itself, what self is, right? So it has to match itself, right? And then there's negative selection again when it matches self with antigens, that means in a class one presenting self, right? It kills itself, and that prevents autoimmunity, right? So this is the mechanism of tolerance, the major mechanism, there's peripheral tolerance as well, but the major central mechanism of tolerance is the recognition of self, and any time you have a good receptor and you recognize that that is presenting, that the epithelial cell is presenting self, right? You die in the thymus. So there's two rounds of death and one round of positive selection in the thymus. And I'll just, because timing is an issue here, you'll see how the issue is. Let me just say that the alpha-beta receptors, right? This is birth at about 20 days, 21 days. The alpha-beta receptors start as an embryo, right? Then they're pretty low at, at birth, right? And they go up to as many as 10 to the 7th cells, right? And then there's various V genes that are switching at various times. Okay. Okay. This, this is the, just to recapitulate what I've said. There are, this is the germline configuration. There are V genes, a D gene, a variety of J genes, and a constant region gene, right? That's the confirmation. Uh, these are transcribed. When they're finally transcribed, right, there's gene switching. There are recombination enzymes called RAG enzymes, which do this recombination. And now you'll get a specific V gene, a specific DJ combination, and a constant region splicing out the, the Js. Right? And that puts a beta receptor on the surface, which is seen here. Right? And then that checks out the surveillance. And, and on the right, there are these surface markers? Yes, the, so th this is the way you could sort them. And this is, remember I told you, double negative one, double negative two, double negative three, four, right? And then triple positive, and then double positive. So double positive is a cell that has a good receptor on its surface. That's the guy, the double positive is the guy that becomes a thymic lymphoma. So we can sort for those double positives and only look at one compartment in, in this case, right? All right, so so the, the reason we do this is because it gives us a big advantage to look at clonality, right? All right, so uh, I'm gonna, well, here's the RAG genes. You can see the two times the RAG genes are made for receptor recombination. There are a whole series of oncogenes which are important for cell division and so forth. But this is the first data set that comes in. So we use a high volume sequencing machine uh, an aluminum machine, what we do is we'll go into the thymus, we'll extract the DNA, we set our PCR primers across the C region and the V region, and then we sequence in. And that turns out to be about 150 nucleotides. 
And that's great because the capacity is about 200 nucleotide reads. So every read is a different gene, right? So which uh, this is a T cell. No, no, uh, T cell so receptor. It's the beta T cell receptor. Okay. So, Not which, which, which constant region here? Uh, the constant region that we're looking at is the single constant region that this gene has. So it's not like antibody that has four gamma and an alpha and a beta, alpha and and delta and epsilon. It's it's a single constant region gene, which makes up the alpha chain. There's an alpha, beta, gamma, and delta chain, and we're looking at the beta chain. Right? So we set our primers at the beta region. Doesn't really matter which one we look at, because they're each clonal uh, in the nature. So um, uh, E17 means embryonic 17th day. So we're looking just as the thymus is formed, right? And this is the number of clones you get to ask the question, does P53's absence mess up thymic development? So, um, and, and there was some thought that there's sexual dimorphism in the male and female immune system, and so we did two males and two females. Uh, but there's about 35 to 40,000, 45,000 different clones in the wild type background and in the knockout background. Uh, that tells us two things. One is there's nothing wrong with the knockout thymus as far as that. These are individual clones, each one a different clone. So then clone uh, is defined yeah. how? So clone so is defined by a different B cell receptor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because so every B T cell receptor, sorry. So this is sequencing. Uh, this is sequencing. Get some high coverage and uh, clone. Uh, you still see sequencing errors. So there must be some uh, low frequency threshold. Yes. So clone. let me take it. Let me take you through it. Right. So what, what you would do is you set PCR primers. You amplify, right? So you're not reading it once, you're, you're reading it a couple of hundred times, right? So you've you got to have a majority sequence to know it's a clone, right? Uh, anything that's been seen once means that it was a mistake made or twice. It means a mistake made in the amplification or something, and you throw that away. So you do curate the, the quality of the sequencing, and you get uh, 200 sequences, and they're unique, and that, was, that is a clone, right? You'll see what happens. You'll see it immediately here. 200 sequences means? That means you sequence the same gene 200 times. And it will only be present from one cell. Yes, that's yes. right. Yes. Every time there's right. a cell division, there's that's a right. change. In so if, for instance, a clone had amplified and yeah. was there a thousand times instead of once, the PCR amplification product would not be 200, it'd be so thousands. That's right. You could pick it up. Yeah. So as long as the PCR is roughly quantitative, and it is roughly quantitative, you can tell, right? Uh, and these are double positives? Yes, these are all the double positives, yeah. All right, so there's not much difference between a knockout mouse and a female, uh, in males or females in embryonic. Three weeks after birth, um, let, let, I'll just go tell you what DEEP means. Um, 90,000, 65,000, 50, 50, not much difference. In this case, we decided <laughs> Deep sequencing just means you continue to do more sequencing, right? Just a matter of money. Uh, you can, you just keep, because there's so many examples, you can keep sequencing. And so it's not surprising that this may go up a little bit, but it isn't out of the ballpark, right? Charlie, how do you normalize your cell counts? I mean, you normalize for total RNA? Uh, DNA. Total DNA? DNA. We know how many DNA molecules we have. Okay. But if you have clones, doesn't that mess you up? 
No, it just means you'll see what happens with clonality in a minute. But it doesn't mess you up. But if you have a clone, it just means you see it many more times. Right? It goes above a threshold. And I'll show you what the threshold is. Right? Okay. Uh, so uh, by nine weeks, something seems to happen. Uh, males and females are holding at about 50,000 unique clones. And the knockout mouse is dropped. Right? And by 20 weeks, right? or in a tumor, that's a frank, by 20 weeks you get a frank tumor, right? Uh, you're, the, the wild type is holding and the number drops again, right? Now, this is because of clonality, right? What's happening is you lose the number of unique clones because a tumor is growing in the thymus for the first time and you just see the same thing over and over and over again, right? To put it a slightly different way, uh, this is an example of the representation, the percent of the total that's the two highest clones in every category, right? Okay, so in embryonic 17 days, uh, 0 0.16, 0 0.17, these are males, these are females, uh, 0 0.17, 0 0.16, right? So that means there's a, about uh, a thousand representatives of that particular clone, and that's the highest representation. The next highest is about the same, right? right? And that's the, pretty much the same in the knockout mouse. At three weeks, pretty much the same. At six weeks, pretty much the same. And now at nine weeks for the first time, we go over the threshold. So uh, the, the, the mean here is about 0.12 plus or minus 0.04, right? So we're looking above the 0.12, one in a thousand range. And here we see for the first time 2.9%, 1.2%, 21%, 13 percent, right? So that's the tumor growing up. It's very... Uh, Actually, if you section the tissue, you'd have to look for the tumor, but it's there. Right? And then an interesting thing happens that by 20 weeks, right, there are clones that are winners. There are two clones are here. A clone that's 70% and 28%, 98% of the thymus is represented by just two clones. Right? Even though, as you'll see in a few minutes, you can make a calculation that says there's about 0.8 clones every generation being made. Right? 0.8 new cancer clones. Right? Very high mutation rate, and yet there are winners. That's because there are those guys who out-replicate the others. Right? So this is a, another way to represent that. You can, I can show you, I'm just going to show you a couple of ways to represent that. Right? Clone frequency versus the proportion of clones in the population. Right? So uh, black is wild type, red is P53 minus. So now, again, at this high level of one in a thousand or so, you start to see at nine weeks, right, <coughs> outstripping the wild type. And by 20 weeks, that's exaggerated, right, outstripping the wild type. And another way to show this, which I like probably best, is just this. This is, these are the winners at the end. There's a guy at 70%, another guy at 28%. But there's a very heterogeneous clonality here, right? Uh, female tumor, 70%, but then a heterogeneous clonality. Right? Right, so what, why, why is this useful? <laughs> why, why am I so perseverating about the clonality of this? Right? So we, we would think that in the absence of P53, that you'd have, because of the RAG genes, you're getting recombination, you're leaving breaks in the DNA. right? And, that's, and you're getting thymic lymphomas. So we would think that normally 
if you didn't repair that properly, P53 will kill the cell and your thymus will be fine. So wild-type mice never get thymic lymphomas. Right? So this is a property of the, the failure to surveil DNA damage, essentially. So now, for the first time, we can make a, again, back-of-the-envelope calculation of the mutation rate. Right? So, uh, for example, uh, I'll give, I haven't actually wrote it down, so I can give you some numbers. Sorry, just before you yeah. move on to do that, this um, proportions of, of the different types of clones and which ones are winning, yeah. does it depend on whether you're uh, at the surface of the tumor, in the interior? How does it uh, vary spatially? So let, let me, um, no, spatially they're, they're winners all over the thymus. Um, the, what they do is just spread, right? So, yeah. so they, arise, they arise in uh, the, all over the thymus. The thymus is just the, a series of compartments where there are T cells um, which are browsing on epithelial cells either being killed or not. Either saying self or not self, right? Uh, so that could arise anywhere. Um, but, but if it, I take, for but, example, tumor male one and I look at the two Oh, I see, winners, yeah. Now, uh, that's a they, stochastic, I think this is the, just the stochastic variability that you're going to get, right? In fact, um, let me, let me just show you that. I think David is asking an anatomy question. Is oh. there circulation in the thymus? Yes. There's circulation in the thymus, and these thymic lymphomas yeah. will eventually go out and populate the spleen and the lymph nodes, right? Because that's what T cells do. Uh, however, by 20 weeks, they're not yet there. But before they go out, is it like a well-mixed chemical reactor, or is it sort of some memory of where the first... This is localized in the thymus somewhere. Somewhere. The answer is, this, it, you, what you do is you section the thymus, yes. and you look for independent tumors, right? Yes. And they're everywhere in the thymus that, as best you can tell, right? It, the is there a pattern? I, I don't think so, but could there be a pattern? You might find it if you really put on these some principles. These are single sections. Yes. These are, well, they're almost always serial sections serial that you look section. at, but, okay, so but you, you don't look, no, <laughs> we don't ever look at the whole thing. That's too much work. <laughs> no. <laughs> Maybe you'll force me to with your question, but, it, but we don't do it. Yeah. And so the buildup population is, is spread all over the thymus. It's not yes. localized. Correct. There's, there are many regions in the thymus in which you see tumors arise, and they are independent of each other based on this kind of clonality analysis. And the, and the variation is, is terrific here. There are uh, hypermutable mice, and I presume that's because of the, the fact that, you could, let me just step back and, and make it explicitly clear. Uh, these mice are knockout mice. The thymus develops from about the 15th day of the embryo, and yet you see no effect of the tumor until nine weeks, right? That tells you that there are additional mutations that are needed. It doesn't happen spontaneously to P53, while necessary, is not sufficient to make this tumor, right? Now, those additional mutations are oncogene mutations, and we can sequence those tumors and find them out, right? Sometimes we find them out, and they are, if there's any majority winner, it's usually notch, right? But the, the truth is it could be many different kinds of mutations contributing. There are some tumors in which there are an extensive amount of clones that are seen in the tumor just by sequencing. I would call those hypermutable, right? And they're going to be interesting to look at 
for the nature of the mutation rates. What, what, what about those clones is giving rise to hypermutable mutation rates? Well, I'm going to exclude them from my calculation because they're odd. They're outliers. Most of the time you see this kind of clonality. Yeah. Uh, uh, we see very large clones, like 70%. If you go uh, longer, it, it, those are winners. If I take them out and I transplant them into other mice, mm -hmm. those guys are the win winners. They'll grow out and become the whole clone, right? Um, it can, the thymus will continue to generate new clones with time. So, for instance, the difference between what you see at uh, nine weeks and what you see at uh, 20 weeks, right? Gives, you, gives us some measure of the increased number of clones that we see, right? And in seeing the increased number of clones, I'm going to quickly calculate a mutation rate, for example. So, because I have to know the number of generations. Right? And, yes. Sorry, what about selection there too? I mean, how, do you, how do you separate the mutation from selection? Uh, selection isn't playing a role here. That one guy will be selected, and that's fine, but he'll never count more than once, right? Because he's got the same receptor all the time. <laughs> right? So, so there's one... So we're, so, so we're, looking, we're asking, asking for different clones with different receptors, right? Some of them are 70%, some of them are 3%. Doesn't matter to us. The 3% are a rose and the 70% are a rose and each was one event, right? Right, so no chance, a very small chance of uh, re repeating. Oh, it would be very small chance. It's, it's about... Uh, uh, one in several million chance of repeating the same exact sequence, right? And, and yeah. what was the basis upon which you said these must be um, have an elevated mutation rate? What, what, uh, I'm going to calculate a mutation rate for you. Uh, we would anticipate it because we know they have DNA damage, we know they're replicating, and we know they do not have a fail-safe for killing cells that are DNA damaged. Mm -hmm. So we would anticipate an elevated rate and the question I want to try to get at, that's one, one of the major things I try to do here, is calculate how much that rate is, right? You don't mean an elevated mutation rate, you mean an elevated number that escapes surveillance. Escapes surveillance. Yeah, I mean the winners. Yeah, I'm, I only guy I can count is a guy who's still... I mean, you think of pre-mutations and then P53 normally eradicates Yes, so, I, so under normal conditions, all those mistakes that are being made, imagine, let's say the mistake frequency was equal, right? In the case of P53, you'd eliminate those because of apoptosis, because it would have DNA damage. It's the absence of that which gives the elevated rate, right? So it, it is essentially the rate at which mutation is occurring minus the editing, right? Minus the, the killing because of that, right? Uh, so presumably, the, the reason you have elevated frequencies is because uh, some of the clones have uh, are overproliferated, right? So no, wait, 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 wait. But the cancer doesn't develop. No, 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 no. You missed, you missed the point, right? Uh, if some guy's at seventy percent, he's got the same receptor, all seventy of them, right? So I count that once. That's one mutation. 
That's well, one. Course. Yes. Yeah. Of course, you're counting. Yes. But right. The question is, why is it seventy percent? It's seventy percent. Oh, because he's, it's a, it, he's replicating faster. Well, precisely. So yes. So and he doesn't is, undergo apoptosis. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So the question is, where do these uh, overproliferating mutations come from, and do they arise? Oh, so you're asking the second. Day, yes. You're right. No. Uh, you're, happening before they actually, the double negative. They, it happens. It only takes more than one mutation. Yeah. So we know. No. Well, that's a good question. We don't know how many mutations it takes to make an original transformer. Could be one or two. I'm going to assume one, right? That will change by 50% my error rate, right? At least I, I'm going to assume I'm going to assume one. Then, then afterwards, that guy is going to accumulate additional mutations, right? He's still a clone, but he's going to accumulate additional mutations, which will give him an advantage to grow, and he will become 70%, right? So let's say it takes 10 mutations to become 70%, right? If he did nothing else to get those 10 mutations, I could sequence and find out what they were. But he does not do that, or she does not do that, right? She has a mutation rate about 10 to the minus 6th or 10 to the minus 5th. The, the genome is replete with mutations just to get to the 10 that count, right? So I can't say for sure who they are. So I, your question is the secondary question. Who are the guys that give you the advantage, right? That was your question, right? No, but we'll come back to that. Okay. So I'm, I'm going to have to make a set of assumptions to calculate an original mutation rate, all right? Can, can yeah. Just, I yes, just please. Again. Uh, it's no problem. It's a pleasure. Believe me. The, the point is that, of course, in some cases, you see a lot of different kinds of clubs. <coughs> in other cases, you have the, like this example with one with 70 and the other with almost 30. That's right. Don't you think this can be just a result of competition? It is. I agree that there's a no, lot. It, it is a result of competition. You're correct. So they yeah. just outcompete. Correct. That's exactly what happens. So to get so everybody arises with two clones with you know with two clones because the original mutation got them two. And then they let's say grow at a certain rate and someone gets another mutation and it grows faster and then gets another mutation, it grows even faster. And then by the time we're looking at twenty weeks, we've gone from two percent to seventy percent, right? One of the two percent clones. Right? But during that process, that, that's, that's a clone. That's one event as far as I'm concerned. Right? But as part of that process, it continues to make new clones throughout the process. They are here at 5%, at 4%, at 4%, at 2%, at 0.4%, at 0.5%. Each of these has arisen over the 9 to 20 week period. Right? Right? And I'm asking the question, what is that mutation rate for a clone to arise? Right? Not for a clone to be at 70%. What everyone's conflicting here is that you're saying, yeah, there's selection and you get 70%. There's no argument. Of course there is. Right? But, but of course all 70%, I call that 70% because they all have the same receptor. Right? And then the question was asked, what's the probability two guys independently could have the same receptor? I said, it's less than, it's one in a million. Right? So it doesn't happen, right? So I'm trying to get at what the original mutation rate is, right? Why? Because if the mutation rate in our body is 10 to the minus 9th per genome, per generation, per genome, right? Per nucleotide, per generation, right? What is it in these cells without p53, right? That's what I'm trying to get at, okay? What if there's a two or a three hit model and you're uh, greatly... If it's a three hit model, then I have to say that the mutation rate is threefold higher than I'm even calculating, right? Well, it's not, no, it doesn't scale linearly with the rate. It's, you know, you would probably have to 
probably know this. <laughs> I think the two hit model it scales with three halves power mutation rate or something like that. Really? Well, I, mutations are independent of each other. to get a new clone that takes off. No, wait a minute. We're not talking about clones that take off. We're just talking about clones that appear above a certain threshold. It is independent of taking off, right? If it appears at 0.2% of the total, it is above my threshold that it occurred as an event, right? I call this guy an equal event to this guy, right? Whether it's three mutations or two mutations or one to get there, right? But I'm going to assume one. I mean, the problem is uh, in a 0.1% of uh, one in a thousand. seven, they've already taken off. That's right. But you're not seeing individual mutations I, uh, just at the threshold that, of count. I have a threshold. I agree with you. It's one of the reasons it's a back of the envelope calculation. There's a threshold, right? I'm not seeing the first event, right? The first event could happen a lot, and I never get over the threshold, right? Because it needs a second event. But that's the two-hit model. So if it scales with two-thirds, just multiply maybe by two-thirds exponent, right? I think yeah. all, all, you yeah. want to, <laughs> so, anyway, all you want to do is uh, put a, like a lower bound on already high mutation rate, right? Yeah, I'd like to, yeah. In, 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 yeah. in the white population, no, not, not if it's without count, what is the highest percentage of the drone? population. 0.1%. This is the 0.1%. That's yeah. how. This One is in the a thousand, highest. yeah. yeah. That's how you define your... Exactly. That's the threshold. Yes. So you got to get above a thousand, right? So that's about, what, to the ninth? Above a thousand, right? The tenth. To the tenth, right? So that's the threshold. To the tenth division. Ten divisions. Threshold. And if I'm a log off, it doesn't bother me, right? Yeah. Yes. No, 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 no. T cell receptors are relevant for the cancer. Yeah, it is just a useful tool for telling a clone apart from another clone. Yeah, it occurs in an oncogene. It, it occurs. So I have to make an assumption of what the cross section is, yeah. right? I'm going to say there's about 200 oncogenes. Let me say that uh, people in the field would argue there's somewhere between 200 and 400. So I'm always trying to make the most conservative case. One mutation, cross-section of two, any one of 200 genes, right? <coughs> okay. Is that, have I got everybody on the same? No, every wave mutation wave? is equally effective in creating a clone. Any mutation is of the 200 is equally effective, that's which, which I don't really know. It's a, mm -hmm. a, well, I would pick a smaller number, that's all, right? Which we get him over the threshold. Yeah, the smaller number. It'd be, if I had to pick a smaller number of oncogenes, it mean the mutation rate was higher. I'm now getting down to the error catastrophe threshold, right, uh, of, the, of whether the cell even makes it, right? If I go too much lower than 10 to the minus fifth or 10 to the minus sixth. Wait, so which is where the calculation takes. Is the meta question you're asking is at what level does people yeah, survey the mutation rate exactly. in oncogenes? Well, I'm asking, in fact, if there is a higher mutation rate, is it surveying it, right? Yeah. Because there was never a way to get at clonality and get out of the way of rate. It, we have lots of frequencies, but we don't have rates, right? Because of the, we don't know the division number. But the clonality gives us the division number. This gives us a lot, but because, they, uh, let me say, uh, there's actually a sort of whole lore about this in leukemias and lymphomas, but the, the mutations arise in the double negatives, to answer a question that was brought up before. The mutations arise in the double negatives. The double negatives are real stem cell progenitors. 
if I took the double negative class and put it in another mouse, it would outgrow anything, right? It would convert to double positives because that's its differentiation path, right? But it would be one cell would make a tumor. Where from the double positives, it takes a hundred or a thousand cells to make a tumor, right? So the, the real stem cell here is the double negative, and that's where the mutation arises. I'm busy counting double positives, right? Okay. So I'm going to, I hesitate to go through this calculation because <laughs> you guys are tough. But I'm going to do it. <laughs> You're allowed to be skeptical. I like the numbers, right? So here's, here's a, to try to keep the numbers reasonable, we're going to take between 9 and 16 weeks the number of clones that has, new clones that have arisen, right? Between 9 and 16 weeks turns out to be 49 days, right? Okay. And we're going to assume a generation time of about 24 hours, right? It's not that we, it could be 12, but it isn't probably much more than 24 hours, right? So I'm giving you the assumptions, right? Do you want to use the board for this? Yeah, I, I, or I'll just give you the numbers because you'll kill me if <laughs> I put them on the board, right? <laughs> so it turns out there's 23.6 new clones that arise, right, during these 49 days, right? 23.6 over 49 days, right? That's empirically determined experimentally, right? That's clear, right? And, and, and what it assumes is just generation time of 24 hours, and what it assumes is the time it takes, right? A new clone is anything above 0.1? A new clone is anything above 0.1. It's actually a little higher than 0.1 because it has to statistically be above it, right? Yeah, all right? Uh, that means there's about, about 0.8 new clones a day, or a generation. <laughs> that means one mutation every generation, right? Okay, uh, roughly, right? And since there's about 2.5 million clones in this category, in the double positive category, right, it gives a mutation rate of about 3 times 10 to the minus 7th. Right? Right? Now, that assumes... That's that, per what? Th th yeah, that's per... For all, all of Per the clone, the actually. That's it's per genome, yeah. right? Per generation. You're saying that it could be a result of two to 400 genes? No, I'm going to now calculate the cross-section, right? I haven't calculated the cross-section. That's per cell. Per cell. Per cell. 0.8 clones for 2.5 million cells, right? So 0.84 is per cell, right? If all 2.5 million are replicating, 0.84 will arise, right? Okay. Now I have to assume a cross-section. So I'm going to assume 200 oncogenes, right? which if that's the true cross-section for those 200 genes in the genome, that brings me to about 1 times 10 to the minus 9th. Right? And now, if to get back to the genome, right, if there are 20,000 genes, and just to make it easy for myself, 200 to 20,000, right, we're back to 10 to the minus 7th per genome, right, uh, per genes, and if that's 3% of the genome, I'm going to take it down to 10 to the minus 6th, or 10 to the minus 5th, right? So per, per nucleotide, per generation, it's somewhere between 10 to the minus 5th and 10 to the minus 6th mutation rate, right? And that compares with the 10 to the minus 9th mutation rate that's the sort of calculated mutation rate for the genome when you have all editing and everything in place, right? It's 10 to the minus 8. 10 to the minus 8, 
So 10 to the minus 5th to 6th to 10 to the minus 8th, it's a 100 to 1,000 fold increase in mutation rate in the thymus. That would be the prediction. Boy, you look pained. However, the question is, uh, I'm to play devil's advocate here. Please. Alternative scenario. So VDG diversity kicks in at uh, what double negative third stage or something like that, right? Double negative third and fourth, yeah. Something like that, right? So now suppose 1% of uh, double negatives at the second stage, before you put in doctor barcodes, generated the, the, the mutations. proliferative mutation. Right. right. So now everything in that 1% is going to get the barcode, right? And will become a sort of faster growing clone, right? And there'll be many, right? Which will outcompete the remaining 99% of uh, barcodes which fell into slowly growing background. It's not entirely clear so to me. They, so um, to distinguish between these two... two they, I, I, I don't have all the numbers up here, but 20 was about the highest we've ever seen at, at, at nine weeks, which is the first time, nine weeks, is the first time we see lymphomas if we section, right? And it's the first time we get a number above this background level, right? So, um, see, I guess what I'm trying to say is there isn't the winner immediately, right? But, but I think one, one wants to distinguish between the two scenarios. One is uh, clones growing out with the uh, same select, selective benefit, selective advantage, right? And competing with uh, uh, so slower growing background. Yep. Versus the second scenario where uh, clones are generated by multiple effects, like multiple mutations, already after barcode. And I would imagine that the difference should be in uh, the frequency distribution of, uh, of the clones. So I might be able to rule out uh, the two scenarios. So there's only one disaster that befalls us in the argument you're making, right? If someone rushes up to 100%, there's nothing left to show diversity in, right? Because when a clone grows, it actually forces out diversity, right? But as long as you have diversity, right, you're okay. And I've shown you that there's 20,000 clones left to have diversity. We see it, we still see diversity, right? I mean, this guy's a great example. Look at how many different clones have been made, right? He must be really hypermutable to get that many clones, but he also doesn't have a 70 percenter, right? Because that would, 70 percent would, so the experiment ends at 20 weeks when no one's higher than 70 percent, right? But even if there's 2 percent of the clones left, that's still, that's still 20,000 clones. That's still 10,000 clones, are right? They, are they yeah. as diverse? I mean, do you see a distance structure or are they kind of... They're totally related to these leaders? No, they're no, not related to the leaders. Everybody's an independent event because everything so is done in separate cells. That's correct, right? So you could, look at the, you could look at the sequences and there's no sequence bias. That's the first thing that we had to do is look at the sequences and ask, was there a sequence bias, right? In the T cell receptor, if there was, then the question that was asked here could be relevant. Could the T cell receptor be contributing to the growth of the cell? And the answer is no, it's as diverse 
in the knockout mouse as it is in the other case, right? It doesn't restrict all the things that go on in the clone. And since these are independent cells, even independent compartments in the thymus, right? They don't influence each other, right? They shut themselves down once they get a receptor on the surface. They don't continue making new receptor changes. The wild type diversity number is something like 10 to the 4. Uh, well, I, I'll tell you what our diversity number is. I showed it to you. It's about 44,000. Right? So, but, but remember, well, or in the best cases, it's 84 to 131,000 types of clones that we could see, right? If you deep sequence, right? Every, you can always, one of the problems is you can always good sequence more, right? It's, it's just a matter of how many times you want to keep sequencing the PCR products, right? So I, they're somewhere around this level, right? Arnie, we've got about five more minutes yep. for prepared remarks. I don't have anything more to say. So what does this mean for cancer research? <laughs> it, it, it means a lot to me <laughs> and, and because we've been trying to find out what it is that the absence of p53 really results in right so there are people that have Lee-Fraumini syndrome that means they're heterozygous for p53 when they reduce the homozygosity they have a clone that has a higher mutation rate I don't know if it's tenfold higher or if it's a hundredfold higher or a thousandfold higher but it's a high imitation rate. They don't take damage well, right? And that leads, they're not getting cancer right away in the absence of p53 based on this. That leads to the, a series of other mutations which gives rise to cancer with a probability that's 93% over their lifetime, right? And so um, this starts to say what's happening in, at the cellular level, right? And at the genome level to fidelity, right? And it really does reinforce the, to go back to evolution, which was the point of the whole meeting, right? It really does enforce the idea that in the germline, this is seeing abnormal sequences and killing, right? And in so doing, narrowing the, narrowing the selection, right? I mean, it is, it is keeping the species rather constant. It's anti-Darwinian in its, in its processes. And so there are a set of genes which help set the mutation rate and all I would say now is this is one of those genes that helps set the mutation rate and in many organisms in the germline, in the female in the germline in humans, right? But is it anti-Darwinian if you look at it from outside, as it were? Outside of what? what? Outside of the cancer? <laughs> well, well, I'm, I'm looking at it actually from an organismic point of view because if, if I transplant this whole idea from cancer into the germline, and I do that because this is a protein that in all invertebrates and in many vertebrates appears in the germline, right? So I'm transplanting it to the germline, then mistakes made in the germline, translocations or kinds of things, will result in death based on this, what this protein sees, right? So it has an impact on evolution, yeah. So can I parse what you're trying to say here? So it's almost as what you're saying. <laughs> Since I'm not very articulate about it, obviously. It's almost as if uh, P53 mechanisms existed very early on in metazoan development and right. they got co-opted to allow higher organisms to uh, complexity. It's precisely what I try to get across, yes. And there seems to be something that's clearly with fish with this. Well, there's something, something that in very early vertebrate times made the switch. I, I, would, I think that's very curious because it's all 
also when you have just a little bit more biological complexity to your organismal cells that you require. I would say part of that complexity is a greater dependence upon stem cells for, uh, for compartmentalization of the organism, right? Yeah. So I would say that, that starting at vertebrates, you regenerate yourself. The strategy is to regenerate yourself over a lifetime, right? Uh, certainly with worms and flies, the strategy is to be post-mitotic after you're born, right? So, that, so that, that in the extreme cases, this is a time in which stem cells start to take over the body and its regeneration, and that's dangerous. That's really dangerous. Stem cells compete with each other over a lifetime, right, for niches, just like germ cells do, right? Just like organisms do. And in so doing, this is the only thing that will stop them. Right? Yeah. In, in, your, in your high ground, can, can you do a lockdown of D63 and then, and then see how many, uh, measure this probability of uh, defects by counting the number of infected offsprings and so on? I don't know if you can do a, knockout in a, a knockdown in a hydra with an siRNA. I tend to doubt it, but I don't know. I've only been visiting one hydra lab. Where I looked at it and I didn't ask him that question. Um, what I can tell you is with, in cell culture you can do knockdowns. And it, it, uh, but that wouldn't help you because you want to see births, right? So you could do knockouts in the mouse. That's the best thing you can do. You can do knockdowns in the mouse. You don't have to do knockouts. Can you do knockdown in the cell culture? You probably could. Yeah, you could. You probably could. Yeah, I bet you could. Yeah. If they'll be in culture for a while, yeah. Let, 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 me, let me shut down the questions for now. Arnie's here all week. He'll be up in his offices near the fishbowl, so you can go talk to him. Uh, before we thank him, I want to point out we're going to meet again at 1.30. John Koshwanis is going to speak at that time in the auditorium. Anyway, let's thank Arnie. Thank you. <laughs>